The Canucks drop a crucial pair of points against the back-to-back Stanley Cup champs. It is the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. I'm Jamie Dodd, my co-host, as always, Canucks insider Thomas Drance. You can also read covering the team at The Athletic. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca and 650-650, of course, is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, one point out of a possible four from the games on Friday and Sunday, Drancer. Not obvi- obviously not what the team or the fan base was hoping for. And especially in that game last night, I really thought, you know, that was not a dominant performance by the Tampa Bay Lightning, well, but I really was, thought though. they showed why they were the champs. Right, because they knew. Yes. They knew who they were. Right. It like, was a self-aware performance. It was It was a highly professional performance. <laughs> yeah, it was. They knew exactly what they were going to do in that game, yeah. and they did it, and they did it really well. They executed exactly <laughs> what they wanted to do. They were like a bunch of salesmen at a at a conference, right? They showed up and, did, yeah. and got what they had to get done. For sure. For sure they did. Yeah, That's and, exactly right. And then they were like, oh, yeah, we have uh, the best insurance policy in the game, Andre Vasilevsky. So and, we're going to lean on that. they needed it. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness, did they need it. He was unbelievable. Okay. I thought both of the games this weekend were ink blots. Ink blots. You could see whatever you wanted to see, right? If you want to be on team, the Canucks aren't good enough. Well, let's call it Team Drance. <laughs> then... The second period against the Washington Capitals, right, where the Canucks kind of got pushed around. The Cavs seemed like they were toying with their food. They were sort of selling out to get Ovechkin that historic goal, which for once a historic goal didn't happen against the Canucks, by the way. What are the odds of that? Unreal. And the first 10 minutes of that Tampa Bay Lightning game where they completely overwhelmed the Canucks, um, particularly the Hughes-Hamannick pair, which was dreadful in that first period. If you want to look at that, You had evidence for, this team's not good enough. But, if you wanted to be team miracle run as possible, the third period against the Washington Capitals was fantastic. Not not only did the Canucks come back, they felt inevitable. Thanos-like. By the time uh, Bo Horvat put that tap in into the net to to take the lead, you, you knew it was coming. You knew it was coming. Uh, all through the third period against the Tampa Bay Lightning, I felt like the Canucks were basically Tom Brady. There was an awful lot. There was an awful lot of noise, but you knew they were coming back. <laughs> and obviously, they fall short, partly due to an intent to blow call, uh, partly, largely because of an intent to blow call and, and a um, you know CSI investigation that denied them a double minor, but. You know, that was great. I thought that was great. I loved the way that they came at a tired Lightning team and honestly overwhelmed them with the exception of Vasilevsky being, you know, God's representative on earth in the crease. Yeah. And and so it goes. I, I mean, I felt like both of those games gave you fodder for whichever way you want to look at this team. Whatever lens or prism you prefer, whatever bias you want confirmed, you had ample evidence. From the pair of games this week. See, I will say I didn't necessarily get that same sense of inevitability in the Tampa game, but I think that's in large part because of how well Vasilevsky was playing, right? And yeah, I know Garland easily could have got credit for that goal if the referee doesn't blow it, but it didn't feel quite as kind of 
guaranteed as it did in the Washington game. But again, I think in large part, that's due to just Vasilevsky. He was just locked in in that game last night in a, in a way you rarely see. He from was, but they also get the Brad Hunt post. I mean, I was watching that game and I was like, you know, they're coming back. And I, I was careful not to say it because I've got this weird habit of late of jinxing everything. <laughs> you know, like uh, after Bo Horvat scored. Uh, to take the lead, right? This team may never lose again, I tweeted. And then seconds later, the Caps tie the game up and win in overtime. I had like 50 replies being like, you jinxed How them. How dare you? You And not, not only that, but right now I'm getting, you jinxed them. You wanted to jinx them, right? And then and then last night, last night, I point out that for Victor Hedman, and I've talked to Victor Hedman about this. So Victor Hedman grew up in Ornskoldsvik, which is the hometown, of course, of Henrik and Daniel Sedin, but even before that of Marcus Nasland, Right. And even before that, of Thomas Grudin. So, or Thomas Grudin at least played for Moto. So he's got Orange Goldsvig links as well. So in this northern Swedish town, right, which has produced just a, a legion of quality NHL players, Hedman, Forsberg, the Twins, Nasland, right? Um, the Canucks are kind of like team number one, right? And for Victor Hedman, playing in Vancouver, on Vancouver ice against the Canucks, is like being from, you know, Sudbury and playing at... Uh, in in Toronto, sure. playing at the Scotiabank Arena. It's like a kid from Trois-Rivières playing against Montreal. It's like a kid from New Jersey playing in Philadelphia or uh, or a kid from Connecticut playing at MSG. On and on. Go down the list. Pl- 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 kid from Lansing playing at uh, the New Joe Louis. So, you know, the, the New Joe Louis, by the way, which is called Little Caesars, excuse me. Better better make sure to give the yes. corporate sponsors their due. Um, you know, so I, I mentioned that, and immediately Hedman scores. So I'm watching the second and third period unfold, and I'm like, well, I know the, Canu- like, the Canucks are for sure coming back. And I didn't want to tweet it because I felt like I'm jinxing everything. I felt like if I did it, they wouldn't, and people would be like, you jinxed it, you know? But maybe I should have because if I tweeted it, they would have immediately scored. I don't know. I, I, I'm damned if I do, damned if I don't right now in terms of my, my – out of control jinx skills over the weekend. Look, I'm not. I'm not a uh, superstitious person. I'm not so I don't think you either. are either. Just, I, just it, imagine if you had that kind of power, right? If you could just dole out these jinxes well, at will on based Twitter. On, based on my insistence that the Canucks were never getting back in the playoff race, I clearly don't have that <laughs> power. But <laughs> it felt like it over the weekend. You know? No, you jinx you that this the, the, that you're doing as well, right? You jinxed them not getting back into the playoff race by saying it, and then they got back into the playoff race. So th- ah. that's. That to me, that's evidence of your so your it's a, jinx so ability. it's a jinx a jinx ability that I can't actually control. Anyway, what's what's cruel about the where the Canucks are at, right? Is that for as well as they've played and they've been an elite team performance wise for forty games, right? Half a season, like a ridiculously sustained run of excellent results, and you lose a game in overtime to the Washington Capitals, which swings on a pretty dubious uh, penalty call against Tyler Myers. And you lose a game to the Tampa Bay Lightning, which swings on a pretty dubious uh, disallowed goal of, uh, on Connor Garland. And all of a sudden, you need to win for sure. Like, you need to basically be perfect the rest of this homestand because you're looking up at a Golden Knights team that's, what, three points ahead still? Three and has... Three the, points. But the Canucks have, Canucks a, game have a game in hand. But still, as much as they're fading... And then the Golden Knights are not even the team you're chasing because the Dallas Stars have only played one game in the last five days, have three games in hand over the Canucks, and are up two points. Two points, and they at least don't hold the tiebreaker though. But they do have, the, I mean, three games in hand. That's three a games huge, in, at this time have, of year. That's you, enormous. You, you have to assume that it's at least a five point deficit, right? And then you've got you've got some teams charging behind you, and I'm still nervous about like I still say watch out for Winnipeg. 
Winnipeg's the team that I'm looking at thinking, you know, if there's one team that can out Vancouver, Vancouver, it's the team with Connor Hellebuck that just got Nikolai Ehlers back yeah. in the lineup, right? So that's, uh, I think the, I think the Jets are, a, a, you know, the Jets are the other chase team that I'm sort of eyeing as having a outside shot uh, along with the Canucks. Uh, I've, I've left the Ducks behind. I'm not worried about them at all. Uh, I'm certainly not worried about San Jose. No. And I think LA is now safely in it. So it, it, you know, it, you're looking at you're looking at having to beat out Winnipeg, Dallas, and Vegas, or and Edmonton. Well, Winnipeg. So it would be Winnipeg, Dallas, and Vegas, or Edmonton and Vegas for the third spot, right? right. And to me, I'm still more focused. But you have on... to beat out all of them, right? Like it's not like you have to be one of that. You, it's not well, like good no, enough. you have, if if you beat out Edmonton and Vegas, it doesn't matter what Dallas. But you and have Winnipeg to beat do. out both of them. Yes, that's exactly. What I'm yeah. Or, so there's or, or you have the other to beat one. out the yeah. other three, but and be- you have to beat all of them out because of. Dallas's three games in hand. I'm still not even that. That's a very secondary chase to me, right? Because I'm just kind of assuming Dallas with that advantage right. so is you're, going you're, to. You're the hope now is you're betting against Vegas and Edmonton goaltending. Yeah. I'm looking at Edmonton and Vegas, yeah. And yeah. again, you're betting against their goaltending. You're hoping that Connor McDavid and Leon Draisaitl don't go on another, you know, November esque heater where they power Edmonton to a ridiculous power play and a ridiculous record, which is a scary thing to bet against <laughs> yeah, because they're really, really good. Uh, very good. I was talking to a buddy over the weekend about the playoff race. He's a huge Canucks fan, and I was saying the thing with Edmonton is they have a kind of goaltending where they could go on a 10-game losing streak, but they also have McDavid and Dreisaitl. They could go on a 10-game winning streak. Well, and also goaltending is volatile, which is what we've been talking about, right? I mean, Mike Smith was the best goalie in Canada last year in the All-Canadian division. Not that close, by the way. And that was over, like, Freddie Anderson, who's now Vesna quality. Uh, Carey Price, who turned in a historic playoff run. Thatcher Demko, who we're seeing be- emerge as one of the best goalies in the world. Uh, Jacob Markstrom, who is going to be a Vesna nominee. Like, all of those names I just mentioned, Mike Smith Mike was Smith. better than them for an entire season just a year ago. Now, I'm not betting on Mike Smith to return to form, but if you told me that Mike Smith was a 920 goaltender over his next 10... Or you told me he was an 890 goaltender over his next 10. I'd be like, yeah, both make sense. I'm not surprised by either outcome. That's the thing. Edmonton, to me, is still one of the most volatile teams in the league, right? Because of that combination of shaky goaltending, which is inherently volatile, and then the high-end talent, which they have the best of, the best tandem in the league in that regard. So well, you never know, really, what they're going to do in a given stretch of five or six games. Which pivots us, too, to two things that are hot-button topics in a variety of Canadian markets, including this one, but for a different reason which is the goaltending market at the trade deadline, right? It's going to be very interesting because I think it's going to be pretty soft, right? Jonas Corposalo is sort of the the best of the mid-range options, but, you know, that's a, what, two-and-a-half-something million-dollar cap hit, so it's not easy to fit in if you're in LTI or if you're a full-on, fully-fledged cap team. Plus, he's sub-900 the last two years, despite the fact that he had one really good playoff run in the bubble. Um you know, that's not like a slam dunk guy's going to be able to crush it type of um, type of move. Then you look at Marc-Andre Fleury and you look at Yaroslav Halak and they have a couple things in common. One is a fair bit of control over their they situation. Control the process. Yeah. They have the same agent, Alan Walsh, right, um, of Octagon Sports. You might know him from Twitter. Uh, I've seen one or two tweets of his. <laughs> Some of his, I've seen his Photoshop work, um, but I admire both his Photoshop work and his uh, and his um, contract work. He's he's done very well for his clients. So the thing to note, like I saw our colleague Ian McIntyre 
uh, report that there was optimism uh, in the Canucks organization that Halak could potentially be moved, that they could find a way to make that work. And then I saw today our colleague at Sportsnet, Elliot Friedman, say that his indication as of today is that uh, Halak wouldn't wave. And that was echoed, of course, by uh, Sportsnet contributor Rick Dollywall on the Donnie and Dolly show. So we work with all these people. If you haven't gotten, <laughs> I've, I've really, really been keen to emphasize colleagues here. Anyway, the same is sort of playing out with Marc-Andre Fleury. If you've followed Pierre Lebrun, my athletic co-worker. Colleague. Co-worker. <laughs> Just say it. <laughs> my, Just say it. My good friend, Pierre Lebrun. And um, so, you know, here's the thing about, and I've reiterated this a few times and I'm going to keep doing it, especially because the Halak situation is a key one to watch for, right? The Canucks, I think, because of how into the thick of the playoff race they've become, and maybe that changes this week should they blow a flat, right? But because they're now in the thick of it, I do think we're, we're in a world where we're far less likely to see some of the bigger moves that we might have expected a month ago, right? I don't think we're going to see the same type of fireworks uh, above Rogers Arena uh, on March 21st, a week from today, the NHL trade deadline. Uh, Tyler Mott, who I thought was either an extend or trade, and who, by the way, editorially speaking, I still think should be. I don't think that's going to be the case anymore. I do think there's a real chance that he's an own rental. I know that teams that were dangling, you know, fishing lines in the pond, hoping to perhaps get a nibble on, on a Carl, Connor Garland type player, um, are, are certainly less optimistic about their chances to do so today than they might have been four or five weeks ago, right? So that sort of speaks to to what the industry expectations are around the Canucks. Even Larry Brooks has seemingly given up on his JT Miller pursuit. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know really? Yeah. Ca- Capo Caco in a third is not going to get it done for <laughs> no, JT Miller? No, no, uh, despite despite pyrotechnic negotiations against himself in the papers of the New York Post, um, it seems that that chase has been abandoned. So uh, a good sense that the temperature around this team is a seller uh, at the deadline has diminished. And yet, I do think one of the main priorities is going to be carving out cap space. And Halak is key to that because of the $1.25 million overage penalty that the Canucks will eat in the event that he's on the roster uh, after noon uh, on March 21st. So one thing to note as you get conflicting reports about where a guy wants to go, and especially when they have control over it, one thing to note is that this is a leverage point for players and agents as well, right? As part of a deadline trade, when you're an older veteran player, if you have any control over the situation via a no trade or a no move or even a modified no trade or no move, you are able to include in the cost of you agreeing to waive an extension. Oh, yeah, well, let's talk extension and maybe that will change my mind. We saw it with Alex Burroughs. When Alex Burroughs went for Jonathan Dolan to the Ottawa Senators, he went with an extension in hand. Beautifully played by one of the cleverest players in Canucks history, right? That is a key point to note here. So you're going to probably hear some conflicting reports. They are not actually conflicting. This is the game that gets played at this time of the year, particularly for older players on expiring deals with no trade protection, right? This is an opportunity for them too. And of course, you know, any three-dimensional deal, it's not... It's never going to be a blanket. I'm willing to waive. No. Right? It's going to be a, I'm I'm willing to m- consider that 
if they'll pay me, right? Or I'm willing to consider that even if they don't pay me or no, I'm not going there, right? It, it, it really comes down to individual preference of the individual players. So be careful in reading between the lines. Uh, there because there is no conflict between what McIntyre and Friedman are reporting right there can both be optimism on the Canucks end and there can be a reluctance on the player's side to waive unless right for now or at least that's an operating posture going into the deadline and that does not mean full full stop that it's going to be a no when the deal gets sent for their review to press center. Well, that's just the thing, right? Is it's not a it's not an all or nothing thing when you have a no move clause, right? It's not I waive it completely. That's not how it works. It's are you willing to waive it for this specific deal? Correct. And until there is a specific deal with you as you said the possibility of an extension or, you know, what exactly the location is, maybe what the team sees his role down the stretch for them, all of those things until there's something specific to say yes or no to, I don't think there's any sense in getting there's no sense in reading too much into, oh, he won't wave. Well, what won't he wave for, right? Like, that's always the question. And uh, as you said, it's really important to keep that in mind, especially as it pertains to the leverage to trying to get an extension potentially in this deal if you're Yaro Halak as well. But again, no, no one is ever going to come out and say, yeah, I'll wave my no-move clause. Babe, ah, send me wherever. <laughs> you know, Send me to Edmonton. I don't care. Yeah, I'll go wherever. Unless there's just a dire relationship between the team and the player, that one doesn't make... Uh, that's never going to make a lot of sense. So it's always going to come down to what is the specific deal? What is being asked of the player? Then you'll get a clear answer whether or not they're willing to entertain it. Uh, Clayton texts in, Vancouver will do something at the trade deadline, right? And Marcus and Gibson says, with regards to Mott being an own rental, is that not just reactionary to the team being somewhat in a playoff race? I think that would be a fair consideration. And to the question of uh, will Vancouver still do something at the trade deadline from Clayton, I say... I hope so, because we have a, a three-hour Canucks Hour trade deadline special coming up on Monday. So I hope there are still some fireworks at Rogers Arena well, for us to cover, Drancer. Even if there's not, there's going to be fireworks around the oh, league yeah. to analyze oh, yeah. things with impact for the Canucks. And, you know, we're going to get to – even a lack of action is going to tell us an awful lot about the start of the Jim Rutherford era and his plans for this team. I think in Mott's case, it's not so much about it's, – it's more about a – team building philosophy than it is about um, anything else, right? So it's like my view, my view personally, as, and I've espoused this at length on this program, is that, you know, even mid-round picks are, are currency, cold hard cash, maximize value, don't, don't lose value in unrestricted free agency. But I think from a Vancouver perspective, there's a willingness to keep the player if the numbers work, right? There's a deep admiration for him as a person and as a, and as a contributor, right? There is a fit there in terms of the work ethic and the style of play and the speed that I think appeals to both coach and manager. And so, you know, it's not just about like not, not monetizing the asset. It's that you buy more time to come to an agreement that is team friendly, right? It's that you have a player who stays in your lineup for a playoff run and that that might be more worthwhile than pick number 55 in the NHL draft, right? And and I don't necessarily see it that way. Again, I want to reiterate, this is me explaining what the organization's thinking as opposed to arguing for it, uh, as, I, as I understand it anyway. But I think, the, I think the club would need a really big return if they're going to part with that player 
considering their desire to keep him if the money works and their desire to, you know, not weaken a team that's kind of earned something, earned a right to see how far they can take this run, at at least as the organization, I I think, sees it. So with Mott, I think it would take, you know, more more than a late second. Let's put it that way for them to consider it. I'm not saying that he's not going to be dealt and that they're going to keep him as an own rental. At this time of year, everything needs to be qualified with it. It can change with one phone call. I think if Mott goes, though, it's going to be for the type of ask where you're like, oh, yeah. I mean, you have, you have to say to. yes to that. Uh, and that's and that's in part for all the reasons I just laid out. I just don't see an appetite within the organization to sell off pieces that are contributing in a major way to this team right now for, you know, mid-round non-premium draft pick. yeah for non-premium assets, non-premium like assets that, yeah. you know what wh- i mean who cares right like at the end of the day who cares it's the it's an extra second i think that's sort of uh, i think that's sort of how the organization's approaching a situation like that one and uh and you know probably across the board too i i think there's a lot of pieces that this team has that could be really desirable to contenders and that we've seen monetized in the past at like you know a fourth for Oscar Fantenberg is what the Flames paid a few years ago, right? I just don't see an appetite among the Canucks to do that type of like lower mid-range sell-off uh, ahead of the deadline, even with an expiring contract like Mott. Uh, lots more coming up, including the latest from Elliot Friedman on JT Miller. Yeah, we're going to talk about JT Miller and his status with the Canucks. Surprise, what else would, what surprise. Else would we talk what about? What else would we talk Guy's about? Guy's a dynamo. Hey, he scored again last night. Oh, he's incredible. G- gave the big rah-rah speech at the second intermission uh, against Washington. Come on, he's doing it all these days. We will talk more about JT Miller. Take more of your questions as well. It is the Canucks Hour on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. If you want to be on team, the Canucks aren't good enough. Let's call it Team Drance. Welcome back to Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. Jamie Dodd and Canucks insider Thomas Drance here with you for another half hour. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Mentioned JT Miller just before we went to break. And Drance, it looked, it felt as if Miller might put the cape on again and find a way to rescue the Canucks in that third period where he gets the Canucks' only goal of the night, beating Vasilevsky from in close with a nice one-timer off the pass from Connor Garland on a controversial refing decision with the icing. But nonetheless, another kind of game-breaker moment from JT Miller, and he has had a lot of them recently. He continues to just be on an incredible hot streak for this team. I tweeted before the show, because I was just quickly taking a glance at the underlying numbers, right? JT Miller right now is the straw that stirs the drink for the Canucks. It's plain to see, right? He's leading, he's winning games, he's breaking games open, and he's producing at an elite rate. That's that's what you see when you watch them. That's what I see when I watch them. And then I check the underlines, and here's what they tell me, right? JT Miller's on-ice shooting percentage. So all shots taken by the Canucks when he's on the ice, 5-on-5, five five, is, is hovering near 13%, right? Usually he's at about 10 So... That's a that's fairly significant, right? That that does impact a player's overall point totals, and it does impact the environment that we're evaluating them within, right? JT Miller offensively is running downhill a bit, five on five, and that's that pertains not just to him but all of his line mates. 
his personal shooting percentage, five on five, 25%. Now, Miller's a high-end finisher, right? Over the course of his Vancouver tenure, he's maintained a shooting percentage at about 14%, right? But he scored eight goals on his last 31 shots. Every fourth shot has gone in. Now, again, there's a lot of skill there, but if you look at the goal he scores last night as just an example of what luck can mean in hockey, right? You don't usually get an opportunity like that. Often it's an icing. Often the team keeps, you know, another guy down low because they don't think, you know, there's so much that goes in that is good fortune that results in that chance. It's still skill to beat Vasilevsky from in tight like that. It's not that he was lucky to score that goal. It's that the circumstances around it probably aren't replicable, right? And nine times out of ten, that that play doesn't unfold that way, right? That's part of what sort of speaks to it. Now, in the event that JT Miller was shooting at his career norms, that's still five goals on his last 31 shots. It's still great. Still really good. But that's three fewer opportunities where you're like, of course it's JT Miller. Who else would it be? What a leader, right? Like that, I mean, that, in a meaningful way, that impacts your perception of the player. The the other thing to note is the 104.4 PDO, right? So again, it's not just that he's had this elevated shooting clip. He's also got an elevated save percentage, right? That's driving a goal differential. The Canucks are plus eight by, by goals, five on five with JT Miller on the ice over the last 20 games. Um, and based on what they should be, based on the expected goals numbers anyway, 46%. So that would be minus two, right? So there's a fair bit of noise coloring JT Miller as he goes on this league-leading point streak and just seems to be, you know, ransacking opponents on a nightly basis. And you need to be really conscious of this because what your eyes tell you, what what my eyes tell me, is that this is Vancouver's best player. And what the underlying numbers suggest is that at least some of this production... You know, not that JT Miller's not very, very, very good, but that some of this production, some of this recent form is this, you know, elite 1C is probably ephemeral, and he's unlikely, and I don't think this should be controversial, to score eight goals on his next 31 shots, right? It's more likely to be four or five, just like his career norms would dictate. I think when you start having these types of conversations, there's kind of a, an initial knee-jerk reaction to say, well, you're, or you're just saying he's got lucky, right? Or you're saying he hasn't been really good. No, that's not it. He's, an, he's a fantastic player. Who's playing at the top of his Fantastic game. players go on hot streaks, just like everyone. And, totally. And, and it's, you don't have to apologize for that, right? And no. it's not knocking a player to point it out. Like, that's part of the game. You get on a heater. It's his birthday, it by happens. the way. So it we is. should be, so happy, we should birthday, be we, yeah. happy birthday to JT. We should not be... Uh, casting too much aspersions no. to the to the man on his birthday, he, but he is turning twenty nine. He is turning twenty nine, and that sort of is raises, relevant, yeah. really relevant, because that raises the stakes. All of a sudden, you've got this guy who's been a winger for his career, getting a shot to play for, uh, first line center, and all of a sudden his production's jumped up. And some of the narratives that can flow from that are, you know, indispensable leader, right? Uh, straw that stirs the drink, first line center, bona fide first line center. And the underlying numbers suggest that the two-way results right now are not really there for him, right? In fact, they were far better for him two years ago when he was playing on the wing on the lotto line, right? Um, some of this production, some of this big game production is likely to be based in part on an unsustainable run of percentages. And I do think you have to be aware of that, particularly as the Canucks navigate this moment where... He may be at the peak of his value. His peak, his peak value probably does extend into the summer. But at some point in the next 12 months, for sure, 
the club is either making a determination on this player, buy or sell, one way or the other. And you have to be careful in in allowing what he's shown you the last 20 games to unduly influence your view of the player, particularly as some of these, you know, seductive, seductive and and perhaps questionable narratives begin to take hold around. You have to be able to separate the hot streak from the baseline expectation of what you're going to get from the player. And again, you can do that without, you know, criticizing it's not it's not like bad that he's on a hot streak obviously it's great and he's earning it and he's playing really and they well needed it you just have to be able to separate okay this version of jt miller that we've seen over the last month or whatever versus what you can expect to get going forward what you can expect to get going forward still a really good player but if you're counting on all of a sudden this is the new level that jt miller has found you're very much more than likely going to be disappointed going into the future and especially depending on what kind of extension he gets uh, from whoever it is that gives him his next contract. That's potentially setting a team up for disappointment. Are we going to roll the clip? We are going to play the clip. So this is from uh, the 32 Thoughts podcast, of course, with Elliot Friedman and Jeff Merrick, talking about where things stand with the Vancouver Canucks and J.T. Miller. They're thinking on the player uh, about a week out of the NHL trade deadline. If you're talking about extending Miller, you know what first-line centers in this league get. I really think, too, and again, this is my opinion, but it kind of makes sense from what I'm hearing Vancouver's looking at. I don't know if it's Mika's a Benjad or whatever it is, whatever number, but they know what a number one center makes in the NHL. I think they're trying to see if they could move other players to keep Miller. Can they create the cap room to sign Miller this summer? So I think all of these things are going on, and I think they do like Marino. I just hear it's really tough for them to make a match. You know, the uh, the point about Miller is an interesting one, too, and I can't help but thinking about there's the number and there's the term. Now, you might turn around to say, well, hang on, longer term will bring down, you know, the AAV. Like you brought up John Klingberg a couple of seconds ago. I think Dallas would have gone shorter term on him, but that would have been a higher number. You know, Klingberg would have wanted something longer term, which would have got the number a little friendlier. For the Dallas Stars, do you think Vancouver is thinking the same thing that aging curves are real? Like this is not a dumb organization. They understand the reality of things like aging curves. Do you think Vancouver's approach is, look, we know how old he is. We know what happens to players in their 30s and how when they fall off, it's hard and steep. Do you think it's we're willing to go to this number, but not for this term with Miller? The best I can tell is that it's too early to say that. It may be. I mean, it makes sense, Jeff. It absolutely makes sense. I just don't know if that's true. So that is Elliot Friedman and Jeff Merrick discussing the JT Miller situation. Uh, you can hear the whole conversation on the 32 Thoughts podcast. And there's a couple of things I just want to highlight from that conversation quickly, Drancer. The first is Elliot Friedman mentions the uh, the Mika Zibinijad deal. That was an eight-year contract extension worth $8.5 million per season. Now, Zibinijad's a year younger than JT Miller, but still, that is, what, $64 million of total value that Mika Zibanejad got. And if JT Miller is and his agent are going to argue that he should be paid as a number one center, that's what you're looking at, right? So any of this, oh, could they get him for $7 million a season? Like, to me, that's out the window, right? That is, that's not a it, part of the JT. It was never in the window. Exactly. Like, that's not a part of the JT you Miller you don't, you extension don't, discussion. You're not a top 15 NHL scorer over a three-year stretch no. and then signing for uh, the 50th highest cap hit in the league. Like, that's not how it's it not works. Happening. That's not how it works. 
it's not happening. So I think everyone, that's useful, that comparison. Even if you're a winger, that's not how it works. Yeah. That that comparison is useful just that we all kind of get in the same ballpark of dollars and cents that we're talking about here for a JT Miller extension. Like, it is going to be big in money, big in term, big in total overall value. All of those things are going to be significant. Now, it wasn't in that clip specifically. They're, they have a little bit more of a discussion uh, with about the Canucks and the potential fit between them and Pittsburgh. But one of the other things that Elliot Friedman says is that what he's hearing from other teams is when they talk to Vancouver, Vancouver is really, really focused on trying to clear cap space, right? Which is no surprise. We've heard that as well. But then what happens is, you know, other teams are looking at it and saying, well, you're trying to give us the same cap problems that you're trying to get out of right now. So why would we have any interest in that? And between the JT Miller discussion that they had and that point about teams kind of balking at doing the Canucks a favor and taking on some of their inefficient contracts, it kind of sums up the whole reason we started talking about a JT Miller trade in the first place, right? Because the logic of it is the Canucks need to clear salary cap space. Yes, they have a lot of guys like Myers, or, or, yeah, Myers and Pearson and Dickinson that you'd love to trade, but we know those are going to be extremely difficult, if not impossible, to do in straight salary dump situations. At least in season. At least in season. So then you return to, okay, well, who is in demand? Who who can we trade to clear salary cap space that teams are actually going to give us assets for? And at the top of the list is JT Miller. So we're kind of right back to square one in terms of the logic of exploring a JT Miller trade. It comes back to a formulation that I use a lot and that I'll just remind our listeners of one more time, which is that ultimately... The act of trading in the NHL is about collaborative problem solving, right? Between rival teams, between competitors. Can you solve my problem? Can I solve your problem, right? Can we work together to solve our problems or to position ourselves better? That's what the deadline is, right? What's a what's a seller? A seller is a team looking to the future. What's a buyer? A buyer is a team that wants the now, something now to help me now and is willing to pay from the future, right? That, I mean, that's literally the classic trade deadline formulation of a prospect, a player, and a pick, right? That's a, a player you can spare for a better player, plus two assets that help you in two years where, where you don't care, and I do. So let's solve each other's problem, right? It's really hard to make a cap-clearing deal as a seller, right? Because teams cannot take on your problem contract while going for it. Which is why I think you've seen some of the names attached to players, uh, uh, and I'm talking about rival teams, are teams like New Jersey. They're not buyer teams necessarily, right? If the Canucks are going to accomplish a cap-clearing deal, maybe, maybe it's a, a deal where you attach a really good player to a player that you'd prefer to move out. And that's kind of the, again, the reverse OEL trade, right? That was what the Canucks got for, like, Garland was the sweetener to take OEL. Right, so you're looking for a reverse OEL deal in 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 trying to maybe clear some cap space. Maybe there's something there. Uh, more likely, more likely, you're you're kind of going to be resigned to hockey deals or to pure seller deals. And I don't get the sense that the Canucks are very likely at this point to make those types of pure seller deals that we sort of thought they might consider. Uh, you know, the JT Miller for a Godfather offer type package uh, a few weeks ago. So. It's going to be fascinating to watch how they navigate this, particularly because Rutherford has been so quiet, uncharacteristically quiet for him, and because I still think we need to see in 
the context of how this team has behaved in the past, right? Which is, here's a player who's on an expiring. Perhaps they'll monetize him. His value might be highest. Guy gets extended, right? Like That's kind of the classic Canucks deadline of the last decade. Are we going to be living in a different world now that the club has new management? Or are we going to be watching a team function the same way with a more trusted public spokesperson? Right? That's the big question that I'm watching and that I'm curious to get a partial answer to. Not a full answer because, uh, you know, it's one deadline. And, and the Canucks aren't over the barrel with any expiring big, big name expiring UFAs. But, you know, I, I'm curious to see how different the Canucks approach to this deadline looks from years past. But in a world where the priority is to move out contract money so that they can sign a 29-year-old who will be 30 the first year of the extension to a big money uh, deal, uh, a la Mika Zabinijad, um, you know, that that doesn't necessarily give me, personally, as analyzing it on the radio for you, a, a ton of confidence. Uh Clayton texts in, they have to at least try to trade the overpaid guys without a sweetener first. Some GMs are dumb, says Clayton. And hey, look, all in, all indications are that's exactly what they're trying to do, is they're shopping those guys and trying to clear cap space in other ways. No, there's a recognition. There's no dance partners. Like, they, they know that. There's no, there's no dance partners for those types of players. I mean, maybe, maybe for Tucker Pullman, if he gets back in the lineup and, and is healthy, um, maybe because his defensive game has, has played up. I think decently well. I think there's some people around the league who are bigger fans of his game now than there were in the summer when there was widespread sticker shock at the deal the Canucks signed him to. But, I mean, Hamannick, Dickinson, um, you know, those aren't moves that are happening at the deadline unless they're attached to something far more valuable. Uh, Dan in Fort St. John, re-signing Miller will be one of the biggest gambles this team can make. Is it worth the risk of a $9 million anchor when EP40 and Hughes are in their prime versus taking the assets you can get in a in a Miller deal? See, for me, it's not about their prime, right? Because their prime years are now, right? Like, this is early prime years for Miller and Pedersen. Uh, to me, the concern is not how Miller will perform in their prime, because I'm pretty confident looking at JT Miller that you're going to get five years of really high end production out of this guy. Um, and, and that of course includes the rest of this season and the, and the next one. And then probably three years after that, right through, through the age of 33, 34, I think you're probably looking at Miller as a really good bet to be a really, really useful player and, and well worth, you know, a, a deal, you know, in the seven and a half to eight and a half million dollar or nine and a half million dollar range even right on the high end like I'll, I'll go higher because I'm that high on the player but the question is is do you get enough upside from those next three years right are you contending in those years and as I look at this team granted I understand how well they've performed under Boudreaux I don't see a team that's poised to contend in the valuable years of a potential JT Miller extension, I see a team that is more likely to have their window open as Miller becomes, you know, a, and I want to be careful about how I say this, uh, an inefficient hold on your deal, which is the nature of UFA deals. You yes. hope to get, you hope to get a good front end in exchange for a, for a, you know, inconvenient back end. And the other question is if you're paying JT Miller that much, what are you able to do to improve the roster elsewhere when you're committing that much money to that's, the player? Right? That's a really good point. And that, that's kind of ultimately, again, when you talk about freeing up cap space, you're doing the exact opposite if you extend JT Miller to a mega contract. And are, you ever, and are you ever going to bring in enough that all hits in one wave so that you can compete 
and and not just compete, defeat, be better than the teams right now that are already you know either at ahead of or at parity with the Canucks in the standings and have an awful lot more in their system. By which, of course, I, I mostly mean LA and also Anaheim. Uh, quickly, unsigned text comes in. Please talk about PD's status. Signed, well, it is signed actually. Signed a concerned, desperate. Canucks fan. Of course, Elias Pettersson missed the game day to day with an upper body injury is the is the latest that we've heard from Bruce, Bruce Boudreau. There was a report uh, from your colleague, uh, Farhan well, Laji. No, it's it's it was uh, we have Boudreau on the show. Right, so Boudreau right. told us both and, and Farhan just said, do you mind if I tweet this? And I said, that's fine. I'm going to focus on having a good, entertaining conversation with Bruce. But you do you, Farhan. So anyway, uh, I'll, I'll go. I'll get into this. Uh, Bruce Boudreau. The Canucks probably have more intel on Petey now. They, they expected to know more about his status at around noon. But Pedersen and a group of injured skaters, most notably Brandon Sutter, but also Brady Keeper, Jason Dickinson, uh, Al, uh, I almost said Alex Burrows, Kyle Burrows, um, skated today at Rogers Arena around uh, 1030. And, um, and so that's a good sign, I suppose, with Pedersen, except that the club listed upper body. So maybe skating doesn't, mean a ton I mean obviously the concern that people will naturally have is the wrist because that ended his season last year and he dealt with it all off season and even entering this season had it bandaged and has admitted that it was you know something that did bother him so uh, club will know more shortly and I'd assume we'll get updates later today but that that was the latest from Bruce Boudreau this morning um, you know once, once the club had had the time to further assess it in the light of day this this am yeah we kind of forgotten since so much has happened since then but remember early in the season when travis green was still here there was kind of a rash of oh it's just a maintenance day oh it's just day to day and then it turned into significantly longer absences for various players for the canucks you certainly hope that's not the case here obviously that it is truly a a day-to-day situation but i mean look it's no surprise that the canucks are going to miss badly miss a player uh, like Elias Pettersson in the lineup. But I did think it really highlighted specifically the lack of center depth as well last night, right? Like you're already playing JT Miller as center. When Miller, Horvat, and Pettersson are all in the lineup, okay, that's great. You have three really good centers to put in. But as soon as Pettersson is out, all of a sudden you're playing Matthew Highmore at center, right? And I realize that's because Dickinson is injured as well, but it just kind of highlighted how little really organizational depth there is at center right now for the Canucks. Well, and this is the other thing. The Canucks going into this weekend's games looked like the healthiest team in the playoff race. And, you know, don't ever take, like, don't ever think of that as an advantage your team has because it changes every day, right? I mean, Tuesday, Heskinen goes down with uh, Mono. Wednesday, Leonard goes down with an injury, right? All of a sudden, Pedersen, like, this is how hockey works, especially at this time of year. I had a, I had someone asked me about LTI and they were like, how do teams manage to manage this things, these things? And I was like, well, the, the thing is that there's a huge gray area between a guy can't be on LTI and a guy can play. Like there's probably three guys playing tonight in this game that have, that are right. playing through injuries severe enough that, you know, a doctor would credibly say that they need to be out. Um, that's how tough hockey players are, right? That's why they all heal like Wolverine in the playoffs. Right, all of a sudden it's like, yeah, he's gone four to six weeks. He's in a walking boot. Two weeks later, he's playing. It's like, okay, sure, these guys are extraordinarily tough. Right, full respect to to the injuries that they play through. It's it's wild, and so you know, with uh, with the Canucks, they have been extraordinarily healthy aside from the COVID absences. 
um, through January and February. And, you know, hopefully that remains the case, but you can't count on that being an edge, right? Like this sport is too physical. Um, the accidents that occur within the game are too, you know, significant. Like it's, it's too high volume. You can't count on, on health. You have to count on your ability to overcome those injuries. And certainly Pedersen's absence was felt by the Canucks yesterday, especially on the power play, but also with what it did to various lineup deployment. Like you saw a ton of uh, freelancing as Boudreaux tried to figure out what he could do. And, and that's a big departure from a coach who's had pretty settled lines throughout his time here so far. Well, it, it just put the lines in a blender, right? Because you really had that split then between the top six or seven forwards and the rest that Boudreaux doesn't really trust to put out there. And you're just kind of jumbling those seven forwards together on the fly pretty much for the whole game. But Boudreaux's very rarely been in a blender, right? There have been so many settled lines or at least lines that play through the whole game uh, as opposed to what we used to see with Travis Green, right? I mean, to see the lines in a blender under Boudreaux was quite a departure from his first 40 games. That will do it for us on the Canucks Hour for today. We will be back tomorrow. The People's Show with myself filling in for Randy Janda and Bick Nazar is up next. It's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. You might know him from Twitter. 